This is Chris Masterjohn, and you are listening to episode 14, which is a very special episode of The Daily Lipid, where I showed up live on Facebook and answered your questions, and this is what happened. This is The Daily Lipid Podcast with Chris Masterjohn, health and nutrition news you can use on the daily. Are are, are you ready? This first Facebook Live experience, folks, was incredible. And it was incredible because you showed up to ask the questions that became the show. The only downside to it was that there were so many questions that I couldn't answer within Facebook's 90-minute limit. And so to take advantage of the awesomeness that did happen... And to fix the problem of the unanswered questions, I'm going to be doing a lot more of these Facebook Live episodes. So please keep a lookout very soon for the schedule of upcoming Facebook Live shows that I'll be doing, as well as an opportunity to vote on the types of topics that should be covered in those episodes. In this one, here are some of the questions that you can look forward to. Is it the saturated fat that's causing inflammation in animal models of obesity? What do I think of Ray Pete's views on sugar? How essential are antioxidants in the diet? What do I think of Brian Peskin's work on parent essential oils? What are the best tests to measure folate status? What would I recommend for healing after an accidental gluten exposure? What about IgA testing for gluten intolerance? What would I tell someone who... This Tuesday is giving a presentation on nutritional therapy to a group of doctors about saturated fats and cholesterol as advice. How much protein should we eat to balance the considerations of muscle mass and longevity? Is ketosis desirable for a healthy person? And is 100 grams of carbs enough carbs? Can your triglyceride to HDL cholesterol ratio be too low? Okay, all that and more. Uh, Without further ado, here is the full Facebook Live episode from this past Saturday. Okay, so there are some questions. Um, First question is, Ty Beal says, Hi, Chris. I attended and presented at the Oxygen Club Conference on Oxidants and Antioxidants this spring at UC Davis. It was interesting how almost all animal rat models and even human experiment... Whoa... And even here in human experiments used a diet high in saturated fat to induce weight gain. Why would that be? Is a diet high in saturated fat pro-inflammatory to rats and humans? Many at the conference seem to think so, but coming from an ancestral health perspective, I am skeptical. Wouldn't a a diet high in processed refined carbohydrates and oxidized industrial seed oils high in omega-6 be more inflammatory than a diet high in saturated fat? Best, Tybeel. All right, uh, this is... There's some profound misconceptions about what kind of diets are being used in this context. So I would estimate that at any given moment, there's about 50,000 mice worldwide that are going, uh, that are getting, currently getting fat specifically on a diet made by uh, research diets. And that diet, research diets, the company that sells it, calls it a model of diet-induced obesity it doesn't call it a high-fat diet or high-saturated-fat diet. Um, Many people who publish papers about it refer to it as a high-fat diet, and it is high in fat, although that's not even close to its only defining characteristic. Uh, But 
but many people refer to it as a diet high in saturated fat. And I once had the, op- the unfortunate opportunity uh, to be, uh, I think I was the student chair of a panel at experimental biology back in grad school. And I saw someone who presented a diet, uh, a, who pre- uh, did an oral presentation on the diet that she used uh, to cause obesity. And someone asked her a question, was the diet high in uh, saturated fat or unsaturated fat? And she said, it was high in unsaturated fat, and she got reamed out because it was based on lard, and everyone knows that lard is high in saturated fat. Well, as it turns out, um, not only is not only should everyone who knows anything about lard know that it's at least a slight majority unsaturated fat, unless you are feeding the pigs on mostly coconut, um, but in fact. Research diets on their website had for many years published totally wrong values about the fatty acid composition of their diet because they didn't analyze it themselves and they published data about what lard is supposed to be. So I had emailed with the research diets people and uh, I don't know if they did the analysis because I asked them about it or you know maybe I was the 10 billionth person who asked them about it, I don't, I don't know. But eventually, some months down the road, I got an email from the guy from Research Diets who said, hey, we talked about this before. Well, it turns out that we, um, it turns out that we actually did the first ever independent analysis of the fatty acid composition of our diet, and it's totally different from what we had published on our website, and so now we're updating that on our website. And what that showed is that actually Research Diets uh, lard was actually something like three times higher in PUFA than they than they had been saying it was. I don't remember the exact values, but I actually published a blog post about this called Good Lard, Bad Lard. I think if you, if you Google search Good Lard, Bad Lard, you'll probably find it. But um, after the fact, after this is uh, you know published in a more evergreen way on the internet, I will put a link to that uh, blog post in the show notes. Um, That'll probably, hopefully, that'll be by by Monday. Anyway, uh, so as it turns out, these diets are not particularly high in saturated fat, and if you if you compare them to uh, the standard American diet, then maybe they're a little bit higher in saturated fat than what the average American is eating according to Enhanes analysis, if even. Uh, but but they're you know certainly they're way 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 lower in saturated fat than the traditional diet of Tokelau in the Pacific Islands where over half the calories were coming from, uh, were coming from saturated fat. And uh, many people will be quick, quick to point out, well, that's from coconut and those fatty acids are different. And um, that's true, but what many people don't realize is that the fatty acids in coconut that, uh, that are metabolized differently are actually only about 15% uh, of the coconut profile. And the, the majority fatty acid in coconut that people call a medium chain fatty acid is lauric acid. But lauric acid, with respect to energy metabolism, actually behaves more like the other saturated fatty acids. Um, and also lauric acid is one of the main fatty acids that raises cholesterol levels in human trials. 
So I think it's fair to take the Tokelauan diet and say, hey, this diet is massively high in, in saturated fat and in legit saturated fat, not in some unique, obscure, weird saturated fat that doesn't behave the way every other saturated fat does. Um, and they, you know, they didn't have obesity when they moved, when, when a cyclone or whatever it was hit, uh, and half of them moved to New Zealand, their health got worse, their saturated fat declined. So I, you know, I really don't think that any of this has really anything to do with saturated fat. Um, but one thing that, 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 that diet definitely does is cause obesity. And why does it cause obesity? Well, you know, I think if you were to follow Stefan Guinea's work, you would say, well, it's the perfect mix of fat, starch, sugar, and everything to make the diet more palatable. The rats eat more food. They eat more food. They gain more weight. And I think that all of the metabolic effects, including the inflammation, are a result of the obesity. And why that diet causes obesity, I don't think has much anything to do with the saturation of the fatty acids. And it has more to do with the fact that the diet is higher in caloric density and palatability than the control diets. And that, and that causes the animals to eat more and get more fat. And when they get more fat, uh, they, that, the, the obesity itself causes metabolic dysfunction. I'm not saying every, every instance of obesity is associated with metabolic dysfunction, but in general, obesity is one of the primary things that predisposes to metabolic dysfunction. And that metabolic dysfunction is driven by inflammation, um, you know, in, Infl I should well. It's driven by a specific type of inflammation um, that that uh, that is associated with metabolic dysfunction, and the actual overstorage of fat and adipose tissue is one of the things that drives that inflammation. So that's uh, my perspective on that. Certainly, it's you know uh, more could be said, uh, but I hope that gives you at least a, a partial answer to your question. And I'll look on to see what the next questions that we have are. Um, Samantha says, love you on the podcast. Thanks. I'll try to do more podcasts. Uh, Vesna says, thanks for starting the podcast. Yep. Thanks. I'll do more podcasts for sure. Um, Shelly admires my work. Thank you, Shelly. Matthew Hoff says, Chris, I was wondering, are you familiar with some of the viewpoints that Ray Pete and others such as Andrew Kim have made in regards to a very pro-sugar attitude as in simple sugars, mostly from fruits, juices, milk, etc. If so, what are your thoughts on it? Uh, so I I find it very valuable to read Ray Pete's writing, not because I wind up agreeing with all of it, but because his perspective is so far outside of everyone else's perspective that it's very thought-provoking to read his work. And I have good friends who have expertise that I do who absolutely don't share this opinion of Ray Pete's work. And I think sometimes what it comes down to is people read Ray Pete's work and they follow up the references and they don't think it supports what Ray Pete said, said it was. But my, you know, when I look at the references, uh, you know, quite often same thing, but it still stands, it still stands that I wouldn't have even bothered to read those papers if it hadn't been for Ray Pete. So in the, uh, I'll get as an example that I'll give you in um, before or, or in the first year of grad school, I published a report on my website that I sell for fifteen dollars uh, called "How Essential Are the Essential Fatty Acids?" And one of the things that made me do the research that became that report was that I was reading Ray Pete's work on the essential fatty acids, and you know he took positions like essential fatty acid deficiency is good, um, thyroid, uh, you know. 
if you if you lower essential fatty acids as close to zero as you can, you increase thyroid activity, and all the problems are because thyroid activity is high and they didn't have enough B vitamins. So I looked at that research, and I don't agree with that interpretation at all. But I would never have made my own conclusions if I had not gone back to the 1929 paper of Burr and Burr, and if I had not gone back to the references that cited Burr's work and Burr's other work. I would not have come up with that, uh, with my own view on that, if I had not read the other studies that Pete was citing from back, you know, in the early decades of fatty acid research where they found that B vitamins protected from essential fatty acid deficiency. So I, uh, so I would say in general, I think that if, if you're the type of person who's just looking for someone to tell them what to do, uh, I'm not. I'm probably not going to direct you to Ray Pete's writings. I'm not saying it doesn't have practical value, but um, but there are things that I would agree with and things that I wouldn't agree with in practical conclusions. But if you're someone who wants to broaden the scope of your thought processes, I would totally direct you to Ray Pete's writings. And that's not an endorsement like, hey, everything he says is right. It's an endorsement like, hey, if you have the time and you have the mental energy, go learn this totally different perspective that you that no one else is saying and see what you can get out of it. And as with respect to the sugar, uh, I think that if you go back to Weston Price, Weston Price documented that physical health uh, across the across the globe was um, was just fell apart in population after population when their traditional diets of nutrient-dense foods were replaced with what he called the foods, the displacing foods of modern commerce, which included white sugar, white flour, jams, syrups, canned goods, and so on. But notice what Price called them. He called them the displacing foods of modern commerce because his paradigm and his theory about what caused the physical degeneration was that the nutrient-poor foods displaced the nutrient-rich foods and the diets became deficient in nutrients. He did not think that the sugar molecule caused those diseases. And he didn't think that if you replace starch with glucose or you replace glucose with sucrose or you replace glucose with fructose, that that is the cause of disease. And one of the things that should be really striking to anyone who looks through the pictures in nutrition and physical degeneration is that Price took thousands of photos and in the book he published, I think, hundreds. And nobody's fat, right? So the healthy people are not fat. The people whose teeth are falling apart because they're eating sugar, the people whose skeletal system is falling apart because they're eating sugar. They are not fat, right? So we replaced nutrient good, uh, nutrient rich foods with refined sugar a century ago, and it didn't cause obesity. And, you know, I don't know if anyone was really looking at it in, in the way that we would today, but probably didn't cause metabolic dysfunction. So I think Weston Price was spot on in identifying the key here as uh, nutrient deficiencies. And I think if you I think if we look at 
biochemistry as we know it. You know, I've, I've actually been writing a lot. Uh, my examine.com research digest editorial was uh, titled sugar is the ultimate antioxidant insulin will make you long younger. That was meant to be hyperbolic and it was meant to be um, provocative, but it wasn't meant to be ironic. And, uh, and, and I think that, you know, if you, I think that the, if you look at the biochemistry and the metabolism, glucose plays many essential roles. And you can debate a little bit about fructose, but, uh, you know, ultimately, most fructose is passing to the liver and is being converted to glucose. So total carbohydrate is the main determinant of, uh, of the supply of carbohydrate and all of the physiology that's dependent on carbohydrate, regardless of where... Uh, regardless of whether it's coming in the form of starch, glucose, fructose, or sucrose. And, and I think that's the main relevant thing. Beyond that, there, there becomes the question, okay, if I want to get X amount of carbohydrate because that's the amount of carbohydrate that I need, well, you know, does it matter whether I get it from honey, fruit, maple syrup, or potatoes, or grains, or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? And yeah, that matters a big deal because honey has nutrients and maple syrup has nutrients and unrefined sucrose from cane sugar has nutrients, but it does they don't all have equivalent nutrient profiles. So in my opinion, if you're taking a mix of carbohydrate that includes starchy tubers and it includes legumes if you tolerate them, for me, I mostly eat lentils, and includes some rice and includes fruits and includes honey and includes a little bit of maple syrup and so on, then you are, through that diversity, you are securing a good micronutrient profile from those carbohydrate-rich foods. If you were to uh, focus on only one of those things, then I think you're going to do a lot better if you were to mostly eat potatoes than if you were to mostly eat honey, just because the nutrient profile is better. And I think that's one of the biggest problems with the fact that most people are getting most of their calories from refined flour. Even though we enrich it nowadays, we don't enrich it with the actual nutrient profile of whole wheat. So it's, you know, it has things that don't belong in wheat like folic acid and it has things that it does, it's missing things that do belong in wheat like magnesium. But even if you just take whole wheat, the nutrient profile of whole wheat is in some respects very good, but in terms of the breadth of nutrients is not very good. So if you're comparing whole wheat to potatoes, then there's lots of things like, um, like, uh, potassium and vitamin C and things that are in potatoes that you are not going to get a, a enough of, even if you're eating whole wheat. So I think that if you're going to narrow in on something, you want to narrow in on the things that have these really broad nutrient profiles. But if you, uh, but but you, if you're, um, if you have a diverse diet, then I think that incorporating things with natural sugars like honey, maple syrup, fruits, and so on is great. And uh, and and you know, to be honest. Um, it, things got to taste good. I'm sorry. If you, if you never eat anything that's sweet, uh, you know, maybe that's your thing. But like for most people, I think if you wanted to tell them what a good diet is and make it sustainable, you best be coming up with a dessert here and there. And you're going to have to put some honey in that, or you're going to have to put some maple syrup in that, or you're going to have to do something like that. Um, so I, you know, I, I think that, you know, maybe it's appropriate for some people to not have those desserts, but like life is meant to have some desserts. All right. Uh, hope that helps. Let's move on to the next question. Armin, uh, Armin says, how essential are antioxidants in the diet? How much is too much? How do we know when we have a pro-oxidant effect? 
Uh, I can answer that in a very general way right now. I think that that question is so broad and there are so many things that support the antioxidant defense system that that's actually uh, 20 or 30 questions wrapped up in one. And uh, and Facebook Live is 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 probably not the, the place to get to everything about that in depth. I, w- I would say that it's absolutely critical to support the antioxidant defense system because it is very well established that degenerative disease, uh, uh, you know, degenerative disease across the board all seems to contain some component of oxidative stress. The issue with antioxidants is that they're absolutely, utterly, profoundly misunderstood. So one of the things that's totally misunderstood about antioxidants is that oxidants aren't bad for you. (laughs) Um, They are physiologically essential. Oxidants like superoxide and hydrogen peroxide are absolutely essential. In the thyroid gland, for example, hydrogen peroxide is what is used to prepare iodine to be able to be joined to the amino acid that will produce thyroid hormone. If you don't have copious amounts of hydrogen peroxide in the thyroid gland, you are screwed with respect to thyroid hormone metabolism. Now, what is the purpose of the antioxidant defense system in the thyroid gland? Well, you know, it's absolutely critical there. And the thyroid gland has one of the highest, I think has the highest concentration of selenium in the entire body because there is an enzyme called selenium-dependent glutathione peroxidase that helps convert that hydrogen peroxide to water. And there is some pretty good evidence, for example, that uh, people, at least a subset, if not across the board in Hashimoto's thyroiditis, which is, um, you know, maybe 10% uh, by some estimates that I've seen of American women and uh in terms of actual disorders, probably the most prom, uh, probably the most common thyroid disorder. Uh, there is some evidence that if you supply uh, selenium, not in in high doses, you know, it's you're looking usually with selenium supplementation. I don't remember specifically the thyroid studies, but uh, in general, it seems like one or two hundred micrograms supplementation is the sweet spot plus whatever's in the diet. Uh, but anyway. Um, sub- selenium supplementation can improve Hashimoto's thyroiditis, as an example. But what is it doing in the thyroid gland? It's not getting rid of hydrogen peroxide. What it's doing is, in the thyroid gland, you make a specific compartment where you make thyroid hormone. You want all the hydrogen peroxide to be in that compartment. And you then, you say that process of making thyroid hormone is really, really dangerous because it depends on so much hydrogen peroxide. And that hydrogen peroxide can damage everything else in the rest of the cell. So you make this specific dedicated place in the cell to make thyroid hormone and you put all the hydrogen peroxide in there and then you retain the hydrogen peroxide very, very low in the rest of the cell. And that selenium is helping protect the rest of the cell from that hydrogen peroxide. If you were to move the end, you know, one of the ways that you regulate thyroid hormone, in fact, is to take the enzyme that usually protects the rest of the cell from uh, hydrogen peroxide, you take it and you move it into the compartment where you're making thyroid hormone. It gets rid of the hydrogen peroxide there and that lowers your thyroid hormone output. Um, So it's not about, you know, one of the things that you can look at about this is that if you just take that as an illustrative example, and, and the same exact principle could be applied to the immune system, which uses uh, which uses 
oxidants in or in order to protect you you could say the same exact thing about the mitochondrion which uses oxidants to protect itself and to signal what signal the energy balance in the cell um any of you know you could apply this across the board but the the thing is with antioxidants is that you are not trying to decrease oxidants that's not the point and you are not trying to in 1985 i think it was the concept of oxidative stress was first def defined as an imbalance between oxidants and antioxidants. So you had too much oxidants and not enough antioxidants. That is being so radically redefined right now in the research community that we could more or less throw that old idea out the window. And what we're seeing now is that supporting the antioxidant defense system means making sure that oxidants accumulate at the right amount in the right places at the right time and that they don't accumulate in the wrong amounts in the wrong places at the wrong time. What that means is that you're trying to give the raw materials to the body to support those regulated processes. And it is not about so much, you know, certainly you need, you could define a dose where that amount of antioxidant is, supports adequate nutritional status, but it's not like you're going to get a linear response where you're going to calculate, okay, I want this much oxidants in my body, so I'll take vitamin C, and I'll, you know, if I increase it by 50%, I'll, I'll get, you know, I can come up with a formula where I'll get this much less oxidants, and that's just the sweet spot for oxidants. That's so, that's so, 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 so wrong. So it's, what we need to do for nutrients is provide our bodies with the right amount of, of those nutrients and then let the body decide what to do with those nutrients. And when we're looking at oxidative stress, we really need to go beyond just the nutritional status of the antioxidant defense system and look at what are the what is causing dysregulation of the amount of oxidants being produced. So as an example, there are, in addition to oxidative stress, we are now starting to see that most degenerative diseases involve an inflammatory component. But is that inflammation, uh, it, that doesn't mean that inflammation is bad. What it means is that inflammation, you know, there's a context where oxidative stress and inflammation are, are causing disease processes. And we need to understand why is the body not taking things that are useful for inflammation and things that are useful for making oxidants and things that are useful for making antioxidants, why is it not taking those ingredients and putting them together in a recipe that promotes health? Why is it instead putting them together in a recipe that promotes disease? And so, um, the, and so you can see that if we were to hash out each nutrient and each um, disease process, we could sit here for hours and hours and hours and hours. Uh, but I, so I, I'm going to leave it at that for right now. And I'm going to say that in the future, in future podcasts, and also right now I'm, uh, you know, there, there should be like thousands of, of people who, uh, who, who want, who are very upset with me right now because I, um, one of the things that I'm working on right now and put, I'm putting on top of priority is making a report on, uh, using essential fatty acids to promote health instead of disease, and part of the you know part of that is looking at the antioxidant defense system. Anyway, I promised this report to a bunch of people who uh, who bought a package of my reports years ago, and then and then 
grad school happened. Um, so I'm I'm actually now right now I'm I'm working on that. So uh, over the coming several months this summer, I'm going to come out with that report. But then I will also start breaking apart in blog posts and uh, and individual podcasts how we can look at some of these peripherally related nutrients that are helping us protect those fatty acids or helping us direct them into the right processes and break it down piecemeal and look at it that way uh, because because you know each nutrient and each context actually deserves its own uh, its own post or its own podcast. Uh, so I, that's not a complete answer to your question, but I hope it sort of lays down a foundation uh, for what we can get to in the future. Okay, Colin Murphy says, uh, hi, Chris. What do you know about sporadic heart arrhythmias, the kind you can feel and which sometimes disrupt the breathing slightly in otherwise healthy 20-something individuals? Uh, I'm going to say right now that I don't really know anything about that. Uh, I do know that one of the things in my personal experience when I was vegan is... Uh, I would I would run and when I would run I would get my heart would feel like it was skipping a beat and that would happen even when I was not even when I was at rest uh, but it would happen a lot when I would run and that went away when I stopped being a vegan so I do think that there's probably and which was ironic to me because I was I was I was sure that my heart was in tip-top condition when I was vegan because I was keeping my saturated fats of you know below five grams a day. I looked at the the side of the cereal box and it said keep it below twenty, and I was like, yeah, five, yeah, I'm like super heart, uh, and and so that didn't work for me. So I you know I think probably electrolyte balance is involved, probably fatty acid in the membranes is involved, probably there's certain nutrients involved, but that is uh, not something that I. That, that's not something that I, I have much to say on right now. It's certainly something I could look more into uh, in the future. And if I do that, I'll publish a podcast on it. I would say that uh, you should talk to a doctor about that because, um, you know, I, who knows if it's, if it's a, harbing, a harbinger of uh, something that is, you're much better off taking care of now uh, before it gets any worse. And you don't want to play around with your heart too much. So I'm sorry that I can't be helpful on that, but I... I certainly hope that things improve for you. Uh, Mary says, are you familiar with Brian Peskin's work on parent essential oils? I am familiar with it. I totally disagree with uh, Brian Peskin's perspective. I think he's right that supplementing with fish oils is potentially very dangerous, but I think his theory of why that is, is wrong. And I think that his practical implications that you want the parent amino acid, uh, excuse me, parent oils is um, backwards. Um, but uh, if, if you want to update that with a specific question, uh, not about Brian Peskin's work per se, but about a specific thing that he says, and you want to ask me about that specific thing, uh, I will not trying to address Brian Peskin directly since I haven't comprehensively read his work. Um, I, I can try to address the specific question, but I, um, but I think responding to, to Brian Peskin in general is, is a little too broad for me to get into detail with. Um, so, uh, all right, next question. Nick Blackburn says, how do you feel about the health benefits of GABA agonist, uh, Fenibut? I don't feel anything about the health benefits of that GABA agonist because I haven't researched it. 
Um, but if you think that it is something that I should look into, uh, feel free to send me a, a short, brief email explaining why. And uh, if it sounds good to me, maybe we can further correspond and you can direct me to some research that, uh, that you think I should look at. Uh, thank you for your question. Lenny says, what would you suggest is the best blood test to assess folate status, Chris? Um, well, right now, there really isn't a, a functional marker of folate status that is specific to folate. So we kind of fall back on looking at folate levels in the blood. And you can look at it, pretty much any blood compartment, like red blood cells or whole blood or plasma or serum, and you can get a useful marker of folate status out of that. That should not be the be-all, end-all. I do think it's important to look at functional markers. So, for example, looking at homocysteine is very useful. It's just that homocysteine is not specific to folate. So, but it, you know, but it gives you a sense of is something that could be related to folate actually going wrong. Um, so, if your homocysteine's high and your folate's low, then you know those together would be pretty strong evidence that you're deficient in folate. Uh, you do want to look at any of the measurements on a complete blood count that are related to the size of red blood cells that are used to kind of all corroborate each other when looking for uh, macrocytic megaloblastic anemia, which is uh, the the um, it's the kind of classical deficiency anemia of B12 and or folate, uh, and in particular the mean corpuscular volume is something that I would look at. And if it's big, that indicates that something is wrong prob and the most likely things to be wrong are B12 or folate deficiency. Um, there are, a, there are, if you look in that section, you will see that there are several uh, tests that all kind of corroborate each other. They're all about the size of the red blood cells, but I would look at that. If you, if you want to cough up some money and, oh, actually, to be honest, I don't know, maybe with Obamacare, this is covered now. Um, Maybe it's not. I have no idea. Uh, but there is a... Uh, let me see if I can pull it up on my internet real fast. I'm not sure if I can. There is a, a methylation panel that is offered by the Health Diagnostics and Research Institute. And I'll put that in the... Uh, when this is out, hopefully on Monday or so, I'll put that in the show notes. But the um, if you go, if you have my examine.com article, uh, I mentioned the name of it there. I don't link to it. Um, rather than giving you the URL, I would say that if you Google search for European Laboratory of Nutrients Health Diagnostics and Research Institute Methylation Panel, you will see that it includes a bunch of different folate metabolites and one of the one of the things I really like about it is, to my knowledge, it's the only glutathione status that's commercially available in the United States that measures glutathione in its reduced and oxidized forms, which otherwise, you know, without that, makes measuring glutathione meaningless. Um, and but it also incorporates a, a bunch of me metabolites in the folate pathway, and that can, you know, if you have if you put on your uh, detective hat and you get someone like uh, Chris Cresser or House MD to look at it and interpret it, then um, then I think that could be really useful. But I, I would say you really don't want to look at that unless you have 
a health problem that you're dealing with and you have some initial evidence that it's related to folate, I don't think that, uh, I mean, unless you can get this for free, but uh, if this is going to be something that costs a couple hundred dollars, um, I would say, you know, don't like get the things that your doctor is going to measure anyway and look at those before you move on to this. And uh, certainly homocysteine and the complete blood count measures I mentioned would be in that group. And I don't think your doctor is going to measure folate concentrations in the blood without you asking him or her to, unless you have a really good doctor who sees homocysteine high or sees folate or, or whatever. But, um, but, but that, that would be sort of the first thing that I would look at. Um, and if you have a health problem that that doesn't shed light on, or it gives you clues that something weird is going on in the folate pathway, then I would look at that methylation panel to see the folate metabolites uh, as the next step in a more intensive investigation. All right. Rachel says, do you have any additional, uh, and thank you very much for your question, Lenny. Rachel says, do you have any additional insight or recommendation regarding things to look out for when healing after an accidental gluten episode for those who have celiac disease? Uh, If your confidence is really strong that that is what you experienced, then, um, then I, you know, I mean, to be honest, I'm probably not the best person to ask about this. I think that what you, if I were to, and like to kind of take this with a grain of salt, but um, I think that if, if you have an immunological reaction in the intestines uh, and it's an acute episode, then you want to provide things that are healing to the intestines. And so I think the first thing that I would do is rest. So I, and I mean rest both from uh, difficult digestion and I mean rest in general. So I would not be a workaholic in the days that follow. I would not do CrossFit in the days that follow. I would not go running in the days that follow. I would rest um, and relax and laugh and uh, hug someone a lot. And then nutritionally, I would focus on the things that you know are really easy to digest. So, you know, that's different for everyone, but... um, if you have gluten issues, then maybe you're a candidate for avoiding FODMAPs. Uh, if you, I would say, you know, for kind of for anyone, um, if you focus on gently cooked and soft and pureed or whatever things that can take the stress off of your digestive system, that would be pretty helpful. Um, and then, you know, maybe supplementation with glutamine and glycine or, or broth to supply some of the nutrients that are important to healing. Um, I do think it's good to get the fat-soluble vitamins in if you can get them in a way that doesn't tax your digestive system. And I don't have much more to say than that. I think this would be really, I think this would be well-directed towards uh, either a forum of people who are dealing with this a lot or towards a healthcare practitioner who as a clinician has a lot of patients with these issues because they might have insights that I don't have. I would also say, however, that I am of the opinion just from being in a lot of those forums in the past that accidental gluten exposure is a real issue, but can also be an explanatory crutch to interpret things that don't have a clear cause. 
so for example, if you ate something and you don't know that there was gluten in it and you have a reaction that you attribute to gluten, that may mean that there was gluten in it, but it may also mean that you uh, have issues with more than gluten. And that would be supported even by the celiac literature, which shows that people don't have the pathology fully reversed with a gluten-free diet in general. And there's plenty of debate. Of course, the gluten-centric view of celiac would, people who support that view would argue that that's because people weren't strict enough with what they were avoiding. It's because they weren't on the diet for long enough. But there are, you know, alternative views that celiac is about more than just gluten. And so certainly it's been well characterized that a hallmark, um, that a hallmark characteristic of celiac is a specific immunological reaction to gluten. But there's also compelling reasons to think that intestinal infections or other assaults to the tissue in the intestines underlie the, initi the initiation of um, problems with gluten, and that that could mean that there are underlying pathologies that a gluten-free diet is not fully addressing. And it could mean also that if you are predisposed to an immunological reaction to gluten, then you may have reactions to other things in foods. And so I'm not definitely not saying that that's the case with you, but I'm just saying as a general principle, I think that people who who if you think you are accidentally glutened and you don't have really strong, compelling evidence that that is precisely what happened, I think that, you know, that interpretation should be taken alongside the potential possibility that you should open-mindedly consider that there are, there are, you know, step one was avoiding glutens there and there's a step two and maybe a step three that you need to do to fully uh, accomplish intestinal healing. And, um, and yeah, and so I, you know, I address that from the celiac perspective. If you look at non-celiac gluten intolerance, then I would say that that case can be made even more strongly because right now it's debatable whether non-celiac gluten intolerance exists. It's debatable if it does exist, how to define it, and so on and so forth. And one of the arguments that's out there with some evidence um, is that what looks like non-celiac gluten intolerance is actually a broader set of intolerances and that if you take, you know, one of the things that can cause people problems with wheat is that they are high in a specific class of FODMAPs. And there is some evidence that people who do well in a gluten-free diet are likely to do even better, if not, you know, at least as well, if not better, on a low FODMAP diet. Uh, and and again, I'm, I'm absolutely not saying that f to you. I'm saying that um, as a general answer to your question for anyone who might get value from this, uh, I think there's, um, even for celiacs, but especially from people who are non-celiac gluten intolerant, I think there's compelling evidence that you need to think more broadly than gluten to fully address those issues. So I gave you two wildly different answers to that question, um, and I, you know, I hope that there's some value in that. If, if you want the nitty-gritty details of a protocol, I'm, I'm not the person for that, but hopefully that helps a little bit as a foundation for you know considering further protocols. Stephen Wheel says, um, is, and thank you for your question, Rachel. Stephen Wheel says, is, palmito is palmitoleic acid 
an important fatty acid. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that all of the, <laughs> in general, if you find the fatty acid in humans, it's, you know, probably important to some degree. Off the top of my head, I haven't looked at whether there is an essential physiological role of palmito, pal, excuse me, palmitoleic acid, um, but it is, it is produced by the human body in conversion from other fatty acids or during de novo lipogenesis as an intermediate, but I, but, you know, not, but also I think we retain some. So I, you know, I don't know how important it is. I really doubt that it's important to try to define a amount that you want to get and then micromanage your diet to get that amount. I think that would be overkill. Um, but, but I, I you know, I, I, I suspect that it probably has physiological important roles. There's probably literature out that out there on that that I haven't seen. Uh, but I, but I think you know most of the time with most fatty acids, uh, you what you want to do is eat natural fats because they contain this spectrum of fatty acids, and it's it's to become to have some sort of deficiency of those fatty acids is for in general for an adult probably going to be really unlikely. If you're pregnant or nursing or for a growing baby or for someone who's bodybuilding and they're growing or maybe for someone who's recovering from a disease, it may be important to increase some of those fatty acids, but that's probably going to be in the context of consuming whole foods that contain the spectrum of fatty acids rather than supplementing with those specific fatty acids. And I would say that is uh, more likely to be the case with palmitoleic acid than it would be for, for say, for example, uh, something like DHA or arachidonic acid because our own abilities to synthesize it are, to synthesize palmitoleic acid are greater than our ability to synthesize those other fatty acids, which is more or less non-existent from, from scratch and from, you know, plantals. We have a limited ab ability to do that. So, uh, but I, but I, um, I don't know if that was a good answer to your question because I haven't looked in detail at the research on that specific fatty acid. Uh, so, um, so you know, if you feel if you feel like that question could have been better, uh, shoot me an email and point me to some research that you think I should look at. Thank you, Stephen, for your question. Uh, Carrie Ann Lancy says, "Hi, Chris. I love your work and podcast. Thanks, Carrie Ann." Question. If you had 30 minutes at your local doctor's center to present on nutritional therapy this week, which is the case for Carrie Ann on Tuesday, what would be your main messages around saturated fat and cholesterol? My main message would be that for most people, not necessarily for everyone, but for most people, Saturated fat and cholesterol are not worth being afraid of, and the scientific consensus that we should avoid them is falling apart. And if you look at the nutrient profiles of things that have saturated fat and cholesterol in them, we can see that we are avoiding nutrients that are important to get for health. And as an example of that, I would... Uh, if you go to my blog, that's blog.cholesterol-and-health.com, or you Google search 
the daily lipid, uh, it should be the first result. If you go to that and you go to the right column and you scroll down to uh, where it says fatty liver, you will see the top, if you press on fatty liver, what will come up will be start here for fatty liver disease. And then you go down to the section on it where it says choline posts. And under that subheading, you'll see a post of mine that's on meeting the choline requirement for humans. If you look at that post, you'll see that there's some pretty compelling evidence that the amount of choline that most people should be eating is higher than what they could get if they're not eating liver and egg yolks. And if you want to look at specific research, then Stephen Ziesel's research, I hope I didn't, uh, I hope I didn't um, mess up his name, but uh, his research, and I think he's at University of, um, shoot, North Carolina, Chapel Hill. I, I don't know if I botched that up. Anyway, uh, Ziesel's research is, is really the, where it's at in terms of scientific literature to give to someone. Uh, but if you want, if you, if, you know, this is Tuesday. So if you want something really digestible, check out my post on meeting the choline requirement and that, you know, choline is by no means is the only important nutrient in those foods, but you can make a really strong case that people need more choline and that, you know, one of the hot topics now is this um, MTHFR genotype and all this debate about whether the, um, whether the common polymorphism, the C77 one, whether that is problematic. And Ziesel did some research that in people who have that very common defect in folate metabolism, what happens is, uh, is that since you can't use folate as well to support the methylation pathway, you start relying more on choline. And as you tax choline, you wind up getting depleted in choline. And supplementation with something like two grams of choline a day neutralized excessive DNA damage in people with that common MTHFR genotype. So, uh, I mean, you can pick and choose what you think are the most salient points to make, but if you're looking for something specific, I think if you rely on Ziesel's research, you can really get, um, you can really get, make a compelling case that people need more choline. And if you look at where you find choline, you can really make a case that avoiding saturated fat and cholesterol and therefore avoiding especially egg yolks, but a lot of these other animal foods as well, is contributing to inadequate choline status. And, uh, and in fact, there was, I don't know if you can still access this, but there was a live stream of s some department, I don't remember whether it was it was probably USDA Dietary Guideline Committee, the, not this past time around, but the time before. I'm not 100% sure on that, but there was, I think if you Google the choline problem in quotes, you'll probably find something written about this. But in the government agencies, they were, they were saying the choline problem is that the clear evidence is people need more choline. And yet we recommend that they eat less choline because we know that saturated fat and cholesterol is bad for you and people shouldn't eat, shouldn't eat egg yolks. So if you want something specific that is compelling, I would look at the choline thing. But if you want something that's general, what should the general message be? I think you can't make a strong case that everyone needs to eat more saturated fat and cholesterol. I think what you can make a case in, uh, that you, where you can make a compelling case where and where someone who wouldn't already agree with you would actually be likely to consider what you say as reasonable and try to move towards the position that you're making. I would say that position is, look, 
Foods that have saturated fat and cholesterol also have a lot of important nutrients. Certain people aren't getting enough of some of those nutrients. And if we can't move beyond demonizing a food because of this one or two components in it, then we are hampering our ability to make sure that everyone is getting adequate nutritional status. And there is good reason to think that some of these nutrients are actually related to clinically important outcomes. I would say that would be the message that would be uh, the, the one that you could really take and have a meaningful impact with. All right. Hope that helps carry on. Thanks for your question. Uh, I, I'm sorry. I'm uh, very unlikely to pronounce this name right. Uh, pre priority Trevis says, uh, sorry, uh, says, thanks for all you do. You've written and spoken on the role of endocannabinoids in regulating neurotransmitters and hormones relating to the stress response. I'm interested to hear your thoughts on how regular marijuana use could disrupt these systems via feedback inhibition, receptor downregulation, etc. Um, I have not studied academically regular marijuana use. Um, read into that what you want. I have not studied it in an academic context. And so I really can't give you specific answers to that. But I can say that in general, I think it's well known among stoners that regular marijuana use is not good for your short-term memory. Um, and you will probably find many of them, in fact, that will tell you they have a short-term memory because they don't know what short-term memory is. Uh, what they mean is that they don't have very much short-term memory. Um, and I, and I, I mean, I, I think it's clear that the cognitive impacts are, in general, not that positive. Um, on the other hand, I think you will find many musicians who would say that, uh, particularly those in Jamaica, who would say that it's very good for musical creativity. So I think that it kind of depends on your specific goals, whether you should regularly use marijuana a lot. I do know that um, that Natasha Campbell McBride, uh, I saw a, a talk that she gave once where she said that the you know one of the typical kids coming in with gap syndrome is uh, typically they're a marijuana user. Uh, I wouldn't you know I wouldn't be surprised if in certain predisposed people that's having a negative impact on the endocannabinoid system and that's causing all sorts of downstream negative effects with mood and so on. But, you know, on the other hand, um, I, I, I think that it's, it's sort of like, I'm not going to get into an argument about whether people should use marijuana or not, because you can make, uh, at least you, I mean, you can make it as, at least a strong case that regular use of ethanol is not good for you either. Um, so I, I think that kind of singling out marijuana, to justify its illegality or to justify whatever is, is sort of BS. Um, and I'm not saying you're doing that and I'm not uh, criticizing you in any way. Um, but I don't, I haven't looked at the biochemistry of marijuana use enough to really uh, comment specifically on your question. What he is referring to is an article I wrote called the pursuit of happiness. So if you, I think if you Google master John, the pursuit of happiness, it should come up and it's about how, uh, the fat-soluble vitamins and arachidonic acid can play an important role in mental health.
All right. Thank you very much for your question. Benjamin says, hi, Chris. About protein, do you have a point of view regarding the upper limit, absolute quantity or percent of total calories for a purely long-term longevity objective, compromising between sarcopenia, mTOR, etc.? Um, I am not convinced by anything that I've ever seen anyone really write about uh, dietary conclusions for longevity. I think there's a lot of good ideas about out there, and certainly the good ideas tend to circulate around mTOR signaling. Um, and I and and actually. To be honest, uh, someone like Peter Atia knows a lot more about mTOR than I do. Uh, it's certainly something I want to look into, but at the moment, I, I can't put it on the front burner. Uh, but I, you know, one of the things that I think uh, Peter Atia would agree with, um, and I think one of the things that, that he would agree with is that uh, you have, if you're trying to target mTOR for... Uh, um, for longevity purposes, you have this problem where you have different isoforms of the M of mTOR that occur in muscle, that occur in the liver, and you probably don't want global suppression of mTOR um, signaling to be the goal for longevity because if you suppress that pathway, Everywhere, when I, for those who aren't familiar with the terminology, um, if uh, glo by global suppression I mean you you decrease the activity of that pathway everywhere. Um, if you do that, then you probably are going to cause sarcopenia, and I I don't think that you want to say okay which amount of sarcopenia, which means loss of muscle mass, uh, which amount of muscle mass loss do I want to be satisfied with so that I can have uh, you know, a longer life. So I think that, um, I don't really think that this is ready for prime time. And, you know, maybe my conclusion would be different if I researched it more. I'm sure that I could have, you know, some more, I'm sure I could have better speculation if I researched it more. I really doubt I would have a better definitive conclusion if I researched it more. Uh, because, you know, if you're, if you're restricting protein in the diet, below that which optimizes muscle mass to comp to on the basis that that should give you a longer life what you're doing is trading a what is now quite speculative benefit that it will occur in a half century later for a real tangible here and now certain loss of muscle mass that we know not only makes us weaker and less attractive if we're if we care about the things that young you know the younger generation would care about but certainly in the case of uh people who are growing older uh the absolute last thing that you i mean i mean to to take as an example like your what's more likely that you are going to um that because of loss of muscle mass and bone mass you're going to be suffer some permanent or semi-permanent debilitation because of a hip fracture or something like that versus how many years at the end that you're adding to your life i think it's much more we have much clearer evidence 
about what we can do right now to support lean body mass. And I think rather, I think if you're trying to come to a, a practical conclusion, what you want to do is say, okay, what is the minimum effective dose of protein that supports adequate muscle mass or supports the ability of resistance exercise to increase muscle mass if that's a goal? And, and certainly to prevent the loss, the age-related loss of, uh, of, of lean body mass. Um, if that's what you're trying to do, then I think that the RDA is 0.8 grams per kilogram lean body mass. And it's pretty clear from research studies that that is not adequate to support lean body mass. And one of the one of the reasons that underlies that is that the RDA is based on what is the amount of protein you need to eat to prevent nitrogen from being excreted into the urine at a greater rate than you're incorporating new nitrogen from your food. And one of the things that's been used to say, okay, what, you know, and so in that case, you know, if you're on a low protein diet, you're protein utilization decline. So, it, I mean, it's not really, you can conclude that protein intakes below that are certainly problematic uh, or are probably problematic, but it's really a bad way of addressing, you know, is that enough protein? And one of the things that's been looked at to uh, try to understand how much protein do you need is the idea that when you start oxidizing the amino acid leucine for energy in muscle, that's when you're eating too much protein uh, because, because that indicates that now you're not using the protein for structural purposes. You're burning it for energy and you're increasing the tax on your liver and kidneys to excrete the nitrogen. I think we now have good reason to think that whole idea can get thrown out the window because the evidence about what helps you gain lean muscle mass is showing that what you need to raise protein to is the amount of protein that goes above what causes leucine oxidation because leucine oxidation is the primary signal in skeletal muscle that drives the anabolic synthesis of muscle protein. So um, I think we're going to eventually we're going to come up with better and better ideas uh, based on what we know about leucine right now. What we can do is sort of like throw the old or you know, view the old research and quantitative estimates with a very skeptical eye. What we can also view is what is the protein amount that you need to prevent lean muscle mass loss during weight loss and to allow you to gain lean muscle mass. And I will say that in the context of an aggressive resistance exercise program, consuming two and a half times the RDA, so around two and a half grams of protein per kilogram body weight, will allow you to gain muscle mass on a 40% caloric deficit where you have relatively rapid weight loss and actually gain muscle mass. Do you need to do that? I don't know, but I will say what you do want is that if you're, if you're saying that the, our public health priority has to be targeting people who are obese to lose weight, then what you definitely need to take into account is that if you have a, you know, a, weight, a caloric deficit that's, that is sufficient to cause 
um, appreciable weight loss at a rate that people are going to be positively reinforced with to stick to the habits that they're developing, um, you will lose a lot of lean mass unless you engage in a fairly aggressive resistance exercise program and you consume uh, at least one and a half times the RDA for protein. So I would say that for someone who is, and again, so, so you want to hedge your bets about the mTOR pathway and longevity. So I would say if you want to hedge your bets on this right now, a conservative estimate of the minimum effective dose that will protect against lean mass loss during weight loss and will probably be adequate to fulfill your basic goals for lean mass gain, if that's important to you, um, that I would target that right now at about 1.2 grams of protein for per kilogram lean mass. Or if someone, you know, it's hard to estimate lean mass. So if someone wants to estimate their ideal or target body weight and use the same calculation, I think that's that's a simpler way to do it. And it's, you know, it's ballpark, but it's it's good enough. Um, and I and so I, if you want to hedge your bets against, you know, hedge your bets against a longevity restriction from protein, I would say don't go above that. That's the minimum effective dose. If you know, if that's, but again, it's it's sort of you're in the realm of speculation here, and so it's kind of like what is important to you in your value system. There's a lot of people out there who. Uh, are gonna, you know, you know, a lot of young, uh, young people who, who are like, I don't care how old I live, and what's the point of getting old if I don't kick ass? And so, if that's your mindset, then I would say that you probably, you know, at the moment, and you know, maybe when your values change as you get older, you you cut this down a little bit. But at the moment, you would uh, probably want to increase that protein to roughly three times the RDA. So that's about uh, two and a half grams of protein per kilogram lean body mass. And, um, and so there's a, and then you, you know, you take your value system and you, you go between those, uh, those limits as the range of how, how important it is it for you to be muscular now versus how important it is it for you to live a long, healthy life. Um, so if the latter value, uh, then go towards the lower end of that range. If the former value go towards the higher end of that range. All right. Hope that, uh, helps. Thank you very much, Benjamin, for your question. Caroline Collard asks, is nutritional ketosis desirable for most individuals that are otherwise healthy? If not, is hundred grams of carbs a day too low even, uh, no, I don't think it's desirable for most individuals, certainly in a chronic state. And um, and probably 100 grams of carbs would be the minimum estimate for a sedentary person. Um, to expand on that briefly, so, I mean, first of all, if you think ketosis is normal, you should stop calling it ketosis because osis is a medical terminology suffix that means abnormal condition. So ketosis literally means abnormal condition of ketones. Um, if you want to instead refer to a ketogenic diet, uh, you know, it's semantics or whatever, but, uh, but I, I'm not bringing it up to hammer the semantics. I'm bringing it up because the semantics reflect the underlying fact that most human 
individuals throughout most of human history have not been in the state that we would describe as ketosis for most of the time. The possible exception to this is the indigenous inhabitants of the Arctic where uh, where the plant availability was far lower than it was in the regions that humans are believed to have evolved in, which are the equatorial regions. And in that case, it's possible that protein intakes and carbohydrate intakes were low enough to put people in chronic ketogenesis. However, I would say that um, maybe I'm wrong about this, but my, and I haven't looked into it recently, but my recollection is that the only people who looked for whether the Inuit were excreting ketones in their urine found that they weren't. So I think you have to keep in mind that these are the outliers of ancestral diets, and there's probably both genetic and cultural adaptations to the anomalous characteristics of their environment. There is emerging evidence that the Inuit, for example, have different genetic polymorphisms that make their metabolism of fats different. That includes the um, one of the things I'm looking at now is how that relates to polyunsaturated fatty acid elongation and desaturation, which is how we get the so-called parent oils that were referred to earlier into the physiologically essential uh, forms of those fatty acids that belong in the body. But there is also some research, and I haven't looked into it in, in detail yet, there's also some research that just you know, fatty acid oxidation in general has genetic differences between the Inuit and most other people. But it's not only that, it's also the cultural adaptation. So for example, when Weston A. Price was studying the natives of the Arctic in Canada, Canadian region, he reported that when the moose were mating, they their moose would have enlarged thyroid glands because you know thyroid hormone is is critical to fertility in all species of animals. And in the moose, they have a specific fertility season. So during their mating season, they get enlarged thyroid glands, and that allows them to conceive. The natives understood that, and the natives would wait for the moose to be to go into mating season and get the enlarged thyroid glands. They would kill the moose, they would take out the thyroid gland, they would cut it up into pieces and feed it to any to feed it to the males and females who were uh, who were hoping to be expecting. And the result of that was that nine months later there was a dramatic spike in the fertility of that group. Now. I don't know if, you know, I, I, like he didn't report the data in enough detail to say that their fertility was abnormally low during the rest of the year, but I certainly got the impression that one of the cultural adaptations to a diet that is extremely low in carbohydrate compared to most of human experience, what they were doing was self-medicating with thyroid hormone in, in order to allow fertility. So uh, it's, it's, un, it's, it's, A, it's unclear to me whether they were actually in what we could describe as an analog of nutritional ketosis, B, you know, and whether you want to call that ketosis, ketogenesis, whatever, uh, B, it looks to me like they were self-medicating to culturally compensate for the low plant food and carbohydrate availability in their region. Um, and then C, uh, it just if you are trying to put a foundation for what is a you know what are the 
what are what how should we use ancestral health and diet to inform what we currently do i would say you want your starting baseline to be at the commonalities across those groups because if you have an outlier group you don't you know you look at the low carbohydrate intake but their diet is way more complex than low carbohydrate and you know to move away from carbohydrate just to really bang this point home uh, the fatty acid, re- uh, you know, move, let's move into to marine oils. So Hugh Sinclair was a fatty acid researcher, you know, in the early in the earlier 20th century. And he was studying the Inuit and he wanted to understand whether a diet high in marine oils causes faster bleeding times because of the blood, blood thinning effects of the omega-3 fatty acid EPA that's present in them. And there was a storm that prevented them from going on their trip to study this in the Inuit. And so instead what they did was they fed themselves an Inuit diet. And what they were interested in was that it was really high in marine oils compared to most human diets. Um, And so their definition of what an Inuit diet is was one that was high in marine oils. And what happened? Well, he said that his MDA levels, which is, it stands for malondialdehyde, and it is a marker of lipid peroxidation, which is the harmful destruction of polyunsaturated fatty acids within the human body. He said his MDA levels went through the roof. And although MDA causes birth defects, he was not concerned about this because his sperm count dropped to zero. Well, okay. But I mean, are you really going to conclude from from that, that the Inuit sperm count is zero. If the Inuit diet caused a sperm count of zero, then there wouldn't be any Inuit. So either there was something different about Hugh Sinclair in his body that made him respond totally differently than the Inuit did, and or there was something different about what he thought was an Inuit diet and what the Inuit thought was an Inuit diet. And quite possibly, had he actually gone on his trip and told them, here, feed me and teach me how to eat an Inuit diet, he would have been eating a lot of other things besides marine oils that would have protected those fatty acids from oxidation in a way that is very particular and peculiar to the Inuit. Because again, the high marine oil intake is an anomaly within traditional diets. It's not the norm. It's not a commonality. So you have you have to be really careful when you take the extreme outlier and say, hey, I'm going to do that. Not only because you might be different, but because whatever your thing about that outlier diet is of interest to you is not the only thing about that diet. And if you focus on what you think is interesting about that diet, you are very likely to replicate that diet in a very distorted fashion because you are taking a thousand things and not including them in what you think is important and you're taking one thing and focusing on it when in fact that one thing needed those thousand other things in order to be successful for you. Um, So I would say, you know, I am not against ketogenic diets, um, but I am, but I don't think there's any basis for saying that they are part of the normal ancestral human experience. And so my position on ketogenic diets is what is the reason that you're doing it? If you have a specific targeted reason to use a ketogenic diet to solve a problem that has a compelling body of evidence in the literature that ketogenics work for that thing, then I support that. 
if you are very, um, if your value system is very much about living on the edge, trying extreme things and doing something to, for a specific targeted reason, and you admit that you really don't know whether it's going to be good for you or bad for you, but you want to try that extreme thing to see if it will solve that specific issue that you have, all the, you know, more power to you. I think that's great if you acknowledge that what you're doing is outside the realm of traditional ancestral human experience. My problem with ketogenic diets is that there are a lot of people who promote the idea that it is ancestral or promote the idea that it's the only way to be healthy or promote the idea that you don't have to have a targeted reason to be on a ketogenic diet. And in that case, I think that it's highly questionable whether you're going to get benefits from it. And as I pointed out, there are a lot of physiological benefits of carbohydrate and insulin that you're not getting on the ketogenic diet. And it's very clear from anecdotes that not everyone has the problems that I say could be uh, developed in that situation, but it's also clear, very clear from anecdotal experience that many people do have those because people are posting on my blog, hey, uh, you know, I, this happened to my hormones as well. Now it makes sense, et cetera, et cetera. So it's clearly it's good for some people, not good for others. Um, hundred grams of carbs is what your liver will store. Your liver's glycogen supply is taxed during fasting between meals. Your muscular glycogen is something that uh, is a couple hundred grams and is utilized during high-intensity exercise. If it, I don't think that there's solid evidence of, you know, this person needs this much carbs, that person needs that much carbs. But I think that one of the things that I see is that a lot of people who don't eat enough carbs don't can't sleep through the night and they wake up uh, they wake up earlier than they should and they have a stress uh, hormone response to that. I think that's because they're not repleting their hep hepatic or liver glycogen supply. I think that there's very little benefit for going under 100 grams. And what I know that it will do is fill up your hepatic glycogen supply if you have not been engaging in high intensity exercise. And I would say that's sort of like the minimal effective dose to solve that problem. And that should be the starting point for someone who's sedentary. If you exercise more intensely than walking and jogging, your carbohydrate demand is going to go up from there according to your exercise. I am not saying that someone can't be successful with exercise on a ketogenic diet, but I am saying that if it, that you, uh, you know, uh, most team sports, most uh, most competitive individual sports like tennis, um, and uh, obviously CrossFit, running, all of these things, like most things that people do for recreational exercise activity, put a demand on the muscular glycogen supply and raise the carbohydrate requirement above that. You know, you can get fat adapted and you can do fine on those things, but you're not going to maximally perform on the ketogenic diet. And you are potentially going to make your muscles try to take carbohydrate away from your liver and make it harder to make sure that your liver is maintaining your blood sugar uh, through the night without a stress response. So, so I think, you know, the, I think that start at 100 grams if you're sedentary titrate up from there. And the, your primary goal should be to titrate up your carbohydrate intake up to the point where you have zero concerns of any uh, symptoms related to, uh, to a stress response, excessive cortisol, um, cortisol 
fatigue, if you want to call it that, and HPA axis dysfunction, circadian rhythm problems, sleeping problems, uh, you know, any of those things, if you're on a low carbohydrate diet, increasing your carbohydrates above 100 grams, especially if you exercise, should be your toolkit number one, uh, particularly if you're already eating a nutrient-dense diet, right? So like if you're eating liver twice a week and you're eating egg yolks every day and you're eating green leafy vegetables and red, orange, yellow, and green vegetables and you're, uh, you know, you're hitting all your bases with micronutrients, then maybe you will get more benefit from eating liver three or four times a week instead of one or two times a week. But if you're eating liver one or two times a week and your carbohydrate is 100 grams a day, then it's sort of like at the top of your list should be take carbohydrate-rich foods that you tolerate and increase the dose of carbohydrate and, and raise something that's really low in your diet instead of taking something that's really high in your diet and try to push it up further to see if that solves the problem. Uh, so that's my thoughts. Um, Jason Prawl asked a question about repeat. I think I dealt with that in my answer to the earlier question at the beginning of the show. Uh, so I'm going to skip over that, but thank you, Jess, Jason, for your question. Carla asks, do you have any insight on gluten despite negative IgA tests and its impact on neuromuscular issues and gross motor delays in children? I don't even support uh, IgA tests for gluten. I'm going to guess, Carla, that you mean fecal IgA tests. I think IgA is a protective thing when it's formed in the intestines. I have looked at, you know, supposed data that supposedly supports fecal IgA testing for gluten. And I was not at all convinced of it. And I was not a, definitely not convinced that intestinal lumen IgA to anything is uh, something that's bad instead of good. Um, but I do think what you have is, and so I would say that, you know, that should not be taken as a sign that is some, so there are two sides to that. One, that should not be taken as evidence if it's there that someone's gluten intolerant. Two, should not be taken as evidence that it's not there that someone's not gluten intolerant. I would say that non-celiac gluten sensitivity is not a well-defined clinical entity. You can make a good case that it exists. You can make a good case that it doesn't exist and that there is a body of people who respond well to a gluten-free diet despite not being celiac and that there is some clinical entity that underlies that response to a gluten-free diet. But the evidence, the jury is out on whether that should be called non-celiac gluten sensitivity because the jury is out about whether the the active component of the things that people are removing that causes the beneficial response is actually gluten. So I'm not against non-celiac gluten sensitivity being recognized, but I'm absolutely totally not for it being assumed. And what I would say is that the science is not at the point where you can make a definitive conclusion. What you want to do instead is uh, take the science and um, it, what you want to do instead is take the science and, uh, and try to, um, understand what are the different possible things underlying the response that you see. So if you see that a, a children, a child who has gross motor delays and neuromuscular issues 
has those resolve on a gluten-free diet, I think you should probably stick with that diet. But you still also want to do more to understand what's going on. And, you know, neuromuscular issues and gross motor delays are something that occur in autism. I'm not saying that a child that has those is necessarily autistic, but it's quite clear that you can make a compelling evidence, uh, you can make a compelling case that there's a place for gluten-free, casein-free diets in children with autism, but you can absolutely not make a case that that's the be-all, end-all of autism. And I think the same thing is true of non-celiac gluten sensitivity. It's you, if you do better when you don't have wheat in your diet, that doesn't mean that you have uh, an immunological reaction to gluten. Um, maybe that's the case, and I, but you could also be intolerant of the fructans in wheat. And you, if that's the case, you may want to see what are the other dietary strategies that I could do to normalize my intestinal health. One of the things that has been tested in that context is a low FODMAP diet. Uh, but, you know, again... It, like it's highly unlikely that everyone who has these symptoms and who has some intestinal component to them all has the same things going on. So I think that's where you really want to take uh, an understanding healthcare practitioner who understands the cutting edge science and can run tests to figure out what the problem is. And that makes me really happy that Chris Kresser is coming out with his physician training program because I think that that will be uh, very helpful to, to getting us to the point where there's a lot more of those practitioners who really understand the gut, but also understand that many other things can be at play. All right, thank you for your question, Carla. Uh, there's five minutes left, so I, um, I think I'll take one more question and answer it quickly. Um, some Megan Hall asks, can your triglyceride to HDL cholesterol ratio be too low, less than 0 0.5. Um, so I have less than five minutes and I don't have time to get into that in great detail, but I'll say right now that um, I don't, I think the triglyceride to HDL cholesterol ratio is an index of insulin resistance. It is not the thing that should be used for cardiovascular disease. For predicting cardiovascular disease, what has by far and away the most research behind it is um, the total to cholesterol, the total cholesterol to HDL cholesterol ratio. Um, so that question to me becomes, can your trigs go too low? Mm, I don't know. I, I mean, normal triglycerides are, like in, in ancestral populations, triglycerides would probably be between uh, 100-ish and maybe 150-ish, depending on the population. I think that there's no basis in reality for supporting triglycerides going lower than that. I think if your triglyceride to HDL cholesterol ratio is too low, I don't think the ratio is that interesting. I think the interesting thing is, are your triglycerides too low? And, you know, usually when people's triglycerides go a lot lower than that, it is because of a, um, it is because of low carbohydrate intake in, you know, your triglycerides could go really low because you have a genetic hypolipidemia. I kind of doubt that that's the case if your HDL cholesterol is really high. Um, so I'm going to say that for reasons that I talked about earlier and in the stuff that I've been writing about lately, I think your carbohydrate intake can go too low. Uh, but I, I don't, outside the context of a genetic hypolipidemia, 
I don't know of a reason to be concerned about low triglycerides that much. Um, but I, but uh, again, for cardiovascular disease, I would be concerned of total to HDL cholesterol ratios that are in substantial excess of three. And um, usually when I see low triglycerides, I don't think what's, you know, is there a problem with the low triglycerides? I think, you know, what is your carbohydrate intake? Because maybe for reasons that have nothing to do with your fasting triglycerides, that is underlying some of the health problems that you're coming to me to ask me about. All right, I'm going to wrap it up there because there is so uh, little time left. Let's see, uh, were there unanswered questions? There were a lot of unanswered questions. Um, I think that means that I need to do this more often. All right, so I, you know, if you if you really like this, then uh, please like it, please share it, and please subscribe to the live feed uh, somewhere on your on your on the video. You should be able to click follow live. I don't, I've never, I, I don't know exactly how it works, but you should be able to quickly find that and, and subscribe to the live video so that every time I go live, you have a notification and, and you get that notification on your phone and you can just immediately tune into it wherever, wherever you are. Uh, but I do, I, I will pre-announce them anyway, because this was great. And I, you know, I hope you found value in this. If you, if you did find value in, in it, then, uh, then come next time, subscribe, like, share, and maybe this is something I should do once a week. Um, I'm going to have to figure out, you know, uh, what, like how often can I do it and um, how often will I get a robust response? All right. Thank you so much, everyone, for coming. This was awesome. Uh, it is great to, to, to do this uh, rapid fire, get my thoughts out and, and, I, and you know, provide value like this to everyone. So uh, thank you so much and have a great time. Uh, cheers to your health. Bye. If you love this podcast, please help support it by sharing it on social media, by downloading the episodes or subscribing to the podcast in your favorite podcast app and by rating it and reviewing it in the iTunes store. The ratings and reviews really make a difference in the visibility and the success of the podcast. If you want to find my work, please visit my blog, The Daily Lipid, at blog.cholesterol-and-health.com where you can find all my other writings as well as the show notes for this podcast. If you want to find my work on social media, find me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Snapchat. Finally, if you want to see me speak in person, come to the Ancestral Health Symposium in Boulder, Colorado, August 11th through 13th or to Wise Traditions, the annual conference of the Weston A. Price Foundation in Montgomery, Alabama, November 11th through November 14th. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next episode.